Well, as always, good to be with you guys. Uh, my name's Brandon. If you're uh, new or visiting, just want to say welcome. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, this fall, we've been going through a series uh, in the books of First and Second Peter, and uh, those are letters written to Christians who are living in the Roman Empire, who are suffering for their faith. And their allegiance to Jesus as king, it was really changing and affecting their lives in some pretty significant ways. And, and the society that they lived in kind of was beginning to ostracize and marginalize and mock and kind of push them to the edges of society. What was happening is that they were living as citizens of a different kingdom. They were living as citizens of heaven who had been sent as ambassadors to their home in the Roman Empire. And what we saw in the first part of chapter 2 is that And uh, what Peter spent the last couple of weeks really fleshing out in in chapter 2 is that that the purpose of God's people, the mission of God's people, the reason why we're here is that the mission of God's people is is to demonstrate and to declare the gospel. The mission of God's people, the purpose of God's people is to demonstrate and to declare the gospel. And specifically, what we've been looking at the last few weeks are four different relationships that the Apostle Peter highlights that are just critical opportunities for us to demonstrate the gospel in. And so um, we're going to talk more about what it looks like to declare the gospel in, in coming weeks, but the, this, this section here in chapter 2 and 3 really hones in on what it looks like for us to demonstrate the gospel. And he gives four, kind of four relationships that, that that happens in. And what we said is that the theme that ties all of these relationships together, the thread that runs through all of them, that it, it kind of informs how we're to relate in them, is that it says God's people that we've been called and freed to submit to even unjust human authority for the sake of the gospel. We've been called and freed to submit to even unjust human authority for the sake of the gospel. And Peter's not calling God's people to just be a doormat. He's not calling them to just be abused. He's not calling them to pacifism or to just tolerance of injustice. Instead, he's calling God's people to be willing to suffer injustice so that their lives might proclaim the good news about King Jesus and his kingly rule. He's calling them to an intentional and a winsome witness for the sake of the gospel that's based on Jesus' example. Not just a good idea, it's based on Jesus' life. And so in our passage this morning, Peter turns his attention. The past few weeks he's talked about uh, our relationships with the government and our relationships kind of in the workplace. And, and this week Peter turns his attention to the demonstration of the gospel in and through the marriage relationship. And what I want us to see in the text this morning is that God's people are called and freed to demonstrate the gospel through marriage relationships that are characterized by honor and submission. God's people are called and freed to demonstrate the gospel through marriage relationships characterized by honor and submission. See, Peter is calling Christians to have missional marriages, to marriages that both proclaim the good news of the gospel to unbelieving spouses and to an unbelieving world. You see, many people in our world, they they look at what the Bible has to say about marriage and they just outright dismiss it. It's, it's old, it's antiquated, it's outdated, it's, even, it's probably even oppressive. And most of the time that happens without people ever actually examining what the Bible has to say, or even more often and more tragically, never seeing it lived out in someone's life in front of them. And so the words of G.K. Chesterton, he wrote nearly a century ago, they still ring true today. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult 
and left untried. It's in light of that sober reality that the calling Peter writes to Christians about in the Roman Empire nearly 2,000 years ago is just as critical for us to hear today. You see, the world needs to experience the good news of the kingly rule and reign of Jesus. Because his rule and his reign is altogether different than anything the world has to offer. And as God's people were called and freed to demonstrate that good news with marriage relationships that are characterized by honor and submission, it's Peter is calling us to missional marriages. It's a call to marriage relationships that point unbelieving spouses and an unbelieving world to Jesus. And I just need you to hear this. It's Jesus who is the ultimate groom. It's Jesus who in love laid down his life for his bride, the church, so that we might actually have life and then we might actually become all that he made us to be in him as we give ourselves back to him. So with that in mind, let's uh, read our passage and pray. We're going to need it this morning, right? <laughs> let, me, let me pray and I'll read the passage. And God, we're so thankful for you and we're thankful for your word. God, I just humbly ask that you cause us to be good students of your word. It, it's so easy for us to just put our uh, cultural expectations, put our understanding and our experiences over and on top of your word. God, and we just ask that you would cause us to be good students who humbly submit under the authority of your word and allow the, the unchanging truths of your word to inform and to instruct how we live and how we view the world. And so, God, we just... That's not going to happen without your spirit just graciously causing that to be true in us. So fill me with your spirit so I might proclaim the good news about your gospel and how we might live and demonstrate it. God, and fill us with humble and teachable hearts so that we might receive it. We need you. We don't have a shot without you, God. Amen. Amen. So we're in First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the world, the word they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way that holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called, her, called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Before we uh, dive into our study of the, our passage this morning, I think it's really important that uh, before we examine what Peter is calling us to, we need to, I just want to remind us why he's calling us to that. Uh, if we don't do that, we're going to get into a whole lot of trouble this morning. Just two things I want to point out. One, Peter's calling us to live in this kind of way um, out of an identity, not for an identity. The way that we're called to live isn't about earning an identity. We're called to live like Jesus because we have already been given a new identity as his chosen people, as his holy nation, as his royal priesthood, as his adopted kids. And we're not trying to earn brownie points with God. We're not trying to ensure our salvation or we're not trying to make sure we don't mess it up. No, the way that we live is out of response to who God is, to 
all that he has done and because and who we are because of what he's done. See, because we're already God's people, it changes the way that we live. Our behavior doesn't make us any more or less God's people. That, is the tr- that truth actually motivates you to obey God because you realize that his love for you is based out of unmerited grace. That's an incredible motivator. Secondly, there is an evangelistic apologetic. There's missional motives behind the instructions that Peter gives. Throughout the whole letter, and especially here in chapter 2 and 3, the purpose behind all the commands and all the exhortations, it's, it's sourced in the context of verse 11 and 12, and it says, I urge you then as foreigners and as exiles, live such good lives amongst the pagans, live such good lives amongst people that don't know Jesus yet, that they might see your good deeds and glorify God, that they might see your lives and might worship God the God that you worship. You see, the purpose of the way we're called to relate to the government, the way that we're called to relate to our employers, the way we're called to even relate to our spouses is about demonstrating the good news of the gospel and how the rule and the reign of King Jesus brings about an altogether better life for everyone, now and for eternity. I think it's really easy for us to see how our relationships to the government or our relationships to our our employers, like how that really affects our witness. I think it's a little harder to see how our relationship with our spouse does that. We kind of tend to think about that relationship as a private thing, right? It's just the world out there, my relationship with my spouse, it's kind of a, a private thing we think of. But that certainly wasn't the case in the first century Greco-Roman world. Household relationships, like, um, like I mentioned last week, they had everything to do with um, social stability and societal structures. And so the, the relationships of marriages had everything to do. They were, they were, that was public business to everyone. And I'll just add this. Um, if we're going to actually apply Peter's commands to live amongst people that don't know Jesus yet, to actually be in the lives of people that don't know Jesus in such a way that they might actually experience the good news of God's kingdom breaking into the world, it's going to be impossible for your relationship with your spouse not to affect that. This is the last thing I just want to get to before we get into the passage. Uh, You might be here and you might be thinking, I don't have a spouse. In fact, I'm not in a relationship this morning. I should have clearly slept in, right? Um, but that really what it does is that, be, that it betrays a misunderstanding of your identity. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, then you are a part of the family of God. And by nature, that means that you are affected by the marriages in this family. And it also means that you are invited, even called, to be a part of influencing the marriages in this family. You have an incredibly high calling. Don't don't miss that as we study this morning. So let's get into our passage and examine what Peter is calling husbands and wives to here. I think it's really important that we see as we begin our study that Peter's instructions both to husbands and wives, as one commentator writes, they masterfully uphold and subvert the social order at the same time. Peter calls wives to submission to their husbands, which wasn't at odds with the culture at the time, but the motivations he gives are wildly different. And Peter calls husbands to relate to their wives with an attitude of respect and an honor and equality in contrast with the cultural assumption at the time of, of just male superiority and male dominion. 
Karen Jobes, just, man, this lady is brilliant. Like, I'm just so grateful for this lady. She's just an incredibly wise commentator. Just, I've just learned so much from her in my studies throughout our time in First Peter. She just writes, just, just really helpful. She says, while, some, many, uh, while many consider the New Testament to be hopelessly chauvinistic, they fail to read the codes against their contemporary literature, which shows that the New Testament writers actually subverted cultural expectations by elevating the wife with an unparalleled dignity and calling husbands to an unparalleled service. In so doing, affirming part of the Greco-Roman social order while rejecting those premises that are not compatible with the gospel. It's really important that we see that this morning. Otherwise, we're going to miss the, like what God's word really has to say for us. So let's examine First Peter's instructions to wives and what they meant, uh, how they're meant to bring about the demonstration of the gospel in the marriage that's contrasted to the, the world that's around us. Verse 1 begins, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over with words, uh, without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands. The language of the passage here has both Christian husbands and non-Christian husbands in view. He's talking to both, both people here. And he says, The wife who has become a follower of Jesus is to submit to her non-Christian husband so that he might see the gospel demonstrated in her life and be won over by her life. But also, wives who do have believing husbands are called to submit to their own husbands so that the friends of their unbelieving husbands would see the gospel demonstrated in their lives as well as in their own lives. You see, the Bi- in the Bible, m- the mission of making disciples is inherently, intrinsically communal. The mission of making disciples is always about community. It's not a private thing. And so submission to male authority in the home was, was not at odds in the Greco-Roman social order, but like I said, the motivations Peter gives are wildly different. In Plato's famous work, The Republic, which really um, is just a really good example of the, of the cultural ideals and of the systems of the day, he writes, he taught that each person in the household has a place under the man's authority. The child and the woman and the slave are each to submit in different ways to the man's authority and are not to aspire to other roles. And the acceptance of one station was just fundamental to household management and social stability. You see, the Greco-Roman world was concerned with the pragmatic social benefits as the motivating factor for wives submitting to their husbands. Don't mess up our world. Don't mess with society. It works this way. Just leave it alone. That's, that, was their, that was their thinking. And Peter's reasoning is altogether different. He begins by saying, in the same way. He's tracing that back to verse 18 when he gave instructions to slaves. He says, in the same way that slaves were called to submit to their masters out of a reverent fear for God, out of a worship to God, so too are wives to submit to their own husbands. The submission Peter calls wives to here is not about preserving social order. You need to hear that. It's not about just preserving some system. Instead, it's about a worship and about allegiance and a reverence for God, the true king, that brings about a voluntary and an unforced submission to husbands. And just like it wasn't about if the master was worthy of the slave's submission, it's also not about the worthiness of the husband being submitted to. It's about God's worthiness to be obeyed. Because for Christians, submission to people is really about submission to God. 
Submission to people is always about submission to God. Karen Jobs again writes, she says, a wife's submission is motivated no longer by expectations of Roman society or by the principles of Greek moral philosophy, but instead by the authority and the example of the crucified and resurrected Christ. In a masterful move, Peter upholds and subverts the social order. And so biblical submission is not about affirming cultural values. It's not about whether your husband is worthy. And I just need you to hear this. It is absolutely not about inferiority. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves and women and children, they all received instruction from men because they were viewed to be deficient or inferior in some way. And Peter's instructions reject that heinous lie in a number of ways. First, he addresses women directly. Most writers of the day, they talked about women. They never talked to women. Peter not only directly addresses women, he addresses them first. Before men, he addresses them first. He addresses those with the least power first. In doing so, he, he rejects their inferiority, and he instead assumes their value and their intelligence and their dignity. Secondly, verse 7, Peter instructs husbands to see their wives as heirs together with their wives, as partners with their wives. They are not above their wives in superiority or in dominion. Rather, they're beside them as ones who equally need God's grace. You see, the kingdom of God, the weak are made strong and the strong are made weak. The gospel brings unparalleled equality and dignity to all people. Furthermore, the very assumption that a wife would desire to win over her husband to the faith in Jesus flew in the face of cultural expectations in the Greco-Roman world that a wife would have no friends outside of her husband's relationships and that she would just automatically follow and worship the gods that her husband worshipped. You see, in that day, if a wife didn't worship the gods of her husband, it, would, it could be perceived as being really rebellious and it could be a huge embarrassment to her husband. Similarly, going to worship with other Christians, with friends, a community outside of her husband, in, in, not in relationship to him, could be seen as highly suspect, even promiscuous, especially if she went out on her own dressed up. Which that gives really helpful context to Peter's words here about not being adorned with elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry. Don't, you don't need to be worried if you like braided your hair this morning like you're not in sin. It's okay, right? Instead, what Peter is saying, he said, instead be clothed with an unscandalous and unfading inner beauty, one that is focused on who you look like, not what you look like. It's a beauty that Peter calls to be focused on who you look like, not what you look like. The goal is to bring healthy and honoring attention to Jesus. If you're just focused on external beauty, you might be attractive, but Jesus will not be. And God wants your adorning to be him. He wants what people to see when they look at you. He wants them to see him. That is like of incredible importance. Hopefully what you are seeing here um, is the crucial nature and the winsome power of the submission that Peter calls wives to have. It's not a call to be a doormat. It's not a call to be objectified. It's not a call to be abused. It's not a call to wear sweatpants and never leave your house the rest of your life. Instead, it's a call to be most concerned with who your life reveals. Who does your life reveal? 
Because unbelieving husbands are watching. And an unbelieving world is watching. And unbelieving husbands are watching their own wives who have become Christians. And they're watching the, the lives of wives who already are Christians. And they're trying to see, is this really good? Is this going to be good news? But before we just write off all this submission stuff as outdated cultural application, we need to remember that the Apostle Paul calls Christian wives to the same thing. The Apostle Paul calls Christian wives to submission to their husbands as well. But his reasoning is different. It's based in a timeless and theological truth. It's based in the nature of the church's submission to Jesus being demonstrated and revealed in a wife's submission to her husband. If you want to find out more about that, you can go back and listen to the sermon that, uh, that we preached here out of Ephesians chapter 5. Um, that's on the website. That'd be a great place to start. But I just want you to, for just for now, Peter's words complement the Apostle Paul's words here. And they help us to see that a wife's submission to her husband is a timeless way of demonstrating the good news of the gospel. But just, just hear me here. The nature of that submission looks different in every culture and in every time. The nature of that submission looks different in every culture and at a time, which is why the language that Peter uses to describe what the submission looks like is heavy on the principles and light on the specifics. Peter's words are heavy on the principles and they're light on the specifics. He leaves most of the details up to husbands and wives to work out themselves. One commentator writes this, it's significant that Peter doesn't directly address particulars. For instance, he neither orders wives to attend Christian worship, nor does he give them permission to stay home and worship privately in their hearts. He instructs her simply to submit to her husband's wishes. Depending on individual proclivities, it might result in different outcomes. See, we like things to be black and white. The gray is unclear, and oftentimes it feels messy. But the honest truth is that the mission of making disciples isn't always clear-cut. There's nuance and there's intricacy in it, because it's not just about outward appearance and rule-following. It's about people and the heart. And if you ask any mom about the two messiest things in the world, they will tell you it's people and their hearts, especially the three-year-old kind, right? That is real messy, right? So instead of specifics, Peter details, specific details about what a wife's submission is to look like, he gives principles instead. He describes the nature of a wife's submission to her husband as being characterized by purity, by reverence, by inner beauty, and by a quiet and gentle spirit. Becky Mora, I just really just appreciate your words. Becky, you once said that submission is a voluntary attitude of cooperation, encouragement, and help. It's a coming alongside and a supporting. Submission is a voluntary attitude of cooperation, of encouragement, and of help. It's a coming alongside and a supporting. And what that's in contrast to is a begrudging participation or a fighting or an undermining. It's not about passive aggressiveness, and it's not about being condescending or critical or belittling. Wives, one of the most damaging things you can do for your own relationship and for the witness of the gospel is to be critical of your husband in front of other people. There are few things that are more damaging to a man's heart than to be talked down to, to be belittled in front of other people. And maybe you saw your mom do that with your dad. Maybe that's what you've seen on TV or in the movies. The only thing that that does is build shame and bitterness. Neither of those things are things you want in your marriage. And unbelieving husbands, they, they look at that 
And they either think, wow, that's just like what my marriage is like. Or they think, I want absolutely nothing to do with that. Instead, are you encouraging him? Are you building him up? Are you affirming the godly things that you see in him? And when you're making decisions together, are you affirming and encouraging him to lead? Not being absent or uninvolved, but standing behind where he feels that God is leading your family and supporting those decisions. Are you encouraging him, trusting him, thanking him for leading, leading your family? Taking leadership is really, it's difficult to do. And our culture is full of a lot of boys with facial hair who have been coddled their entire lives and have no idea what it looks like to, to take responsibility for anything. One pastor noted this week, he said, submission is sometimes about creating a leadership vacuum that your husband needs to fill. I just need you to hear this. It is good and godly for you to help your husband feel the tension of that lack of leadership in your home. It's good and godly for you to help him feel that tension because God's invited and called him to, to, to fill that role that he might serve you graciously in it. Lastly, is, there, is your submission characterized by willingness, by a voluntary and a humble spirit, or is it begrudging or resentful or reluctant? One is life-giving and the other is soul-sucking for you and for him. The kind of submission Peter calls wives to isn't flashy, but it is inspiring. And it's in contrast with a world that values none of it. It is an incredibly curious thing. See, the chief value in our society is self-expression and self-actualization. Be the person that you were meant to be. Don't let anyone, for any reason, stop you. Don't let anyone keep you from that. See, the message to women is that men are either something to be, to be desperately desired at all costs, or they're just something that gets in the way of you achieving your goals. Likewise, the message to men is that women are just objects for gratification, or they're just a chain that drags you down and keeps you from doing what you want to do. And all of those things are idolatrous lies, which either place the worship or the objectification of someone else or of you as the highest value in the world. What Peter has so clearly laid out is that Jesus' way is altogether different. His way is not about exaltation of others or of self. It's about the exaltation of God. It's what we're designed for, and it's where we find true life and true purpose. It's where we find lasting identity. For wives, the way to true life, as well as a powerful and winsome witness, is through submission. Peter says, one of the things that's going to keep wives from submission and from doing good is by giving way to fear. He's saying we're so tempted to fear people instead of God, to be more concerned about what others think, about what our society thinks, or about what our friends think. We're more concerned about those things than we are about what God thinks. And Peter says, you have a new identity. You're daughters of Sarah. You're daughters of God's people. You are daughters of God himself. Live out your new identity. Live out the identity. It brings an incredible boldness, yet a deep humility. Peter says it's characterized by a quiet and gentle spirit. I just need you to hear this. Those are the exact same words that are used to describe Jesus' character. It's not just a female thing to have a quiet and gentle spirit. That's a Christ-like thing. Lastly, just a few thoughts before I move on to the instructions for men. Submission, the submission that Peter calls wives to is not an excuse for missionary dating. 
It's not an excuse like, oh, well, I'll just like win over anybody who's not a Christian yet. I just really love them. We'll date them. They'll become a Christian. It'll be great, right? No, Peter's writing to a people who heard the, first, the gospel for the first time, and they're already married, and their spouses are becoming Christians, and he's just like, here's what you do in light of those situations. Secondly, it's the submission that he's calling to is not submission to men in general. It's not submission to men in general. That's, that's about inferiority, right? That's, and that's garbage. It's about submission only to your own husband because it's about demonstrating the gospel as you demonstrate Christ's submission to the church or the church's submission to Christ. And lastly, and probably most importantly, Peter's call to submission is absolutely not a call to endure abuse. If you are being abused or if you know a woman who is being abused by your husband, that is some of the absolute most despicable evil that exists in our world. And not only does it really anger me, it absolutely angers the Lord. He is opposed to that in every possible and conceivable way. If you are suffering under that or if you know someone who is, get out of that. Wicked and godless men have used verses like these to oppress and subjugate women, and that is absolute garbage. God's word is never, God's word never supports abuse. So wives, called to demonstrate the gospel through submission to their husband, but in verse 7, Peter highlights that husbands are called to demonstrate the gospel through respecting and through honoring their wives. Verse 7 says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as their heirs of you, uh, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing would hinder your prayers. Notice, Peter begins his instructions to husbands with the same language, in the same way. Everything here is coming out of an, an allegiance and a worship to God. He says, in the same way, that's, he gives that instructions to slaves, he gives the same instructions to wives, he gives the same instructions to husbands. Everything is about allegiance to Jesus as king. Edmund Clowney writes this. He says, although the husband does not fulfill the same role in relation to his wife as his wife does to him, there is a fundamental unity of attitude. Both are servants of God seeking to serve each other for Christ's sake. It's out of that motivation that Peter says, be considerate. The ESV translates it. Live in an understanding way. Husbands, are you trying to understand your wives? I realize that sometimes that kind of feels like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube in the dark, and the colors are kind of like the mood colors that keep changing on you, right? I realize that it can be difficult, right? But the question is, are you trying to do it? Are you trying to understand her? Are you trying to know her heart? Are you trying to understand why she does the thing that she does? Why she thinks the things that she thinks? Why she struggles with the things that she struggles with? Are you trying to put yourself in her shoes? And I'm not talking about cross-dressing, right? Putting yourself in the position of someone else, understanding the world through their lens and through their perspective so that you might love and serve her sacrificially. Again, just was the case for wives, Peter here is speaking to husbands who have both believing and unbelieving spouses. He's telling husbands with unbelieving wives, don't force your newfound faith on her, or don't just assume that she'll follow you in it because she's supposed to, kind of culturally. He's saying, Christians were being marginalized, they were pushing to the outsides of society, and you can imagine a wife 
who had enjoyed like the social stability, who had enjoyed the privileges of, of her husband's friends and the, just being part of the society. You can imagine she might be like less than excited about kind of the side effects of the suffering her husband is experiencing for following Jesus. And so he says instead, live in an understanding and considerate way. Honor her, respect her. Tough. Demonstrate grace, demonstrate the grace of the gospel in a winsome way that draws her in to see and to experience the good news of the gospel. Likewise to husbands who do have believing wives, he's saying, show the world how the gospel transforms a man's heart. Show the world how the gospel transforms a man's heart. J.D. Greer, uh, one pastor, uh, he he wrote it this way. Uh, Actually, let me go back. As we show the world what the transformation of the gospel to a man's heart looks like, we need to show that it's first about not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of those with less power and less social standing than you. That's what Peter is referring to here when he refers to wives as the weaker vessels. Um, women are physically weaker in general to men. I realize there's like outliers and bodybuilders and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, I realize that, but in general, right, that's the case. Women are physically weaker to men. But Peter is not really focusing on that. What he's focusing on is the weaker political and social status of women, especially in that day. And Peter is saying, are you using your power to build her up? Are you using her power to lift her up, to benefit her, to serve her? Or are you using your power just for yourself? That's what Peter has in mind when he's referring, when at the very end of that verse it says, do this so that your prayers won't be hindered. J.D. Greer puts it this way, he says, prayer is, um, is from a position of powerlessness. And if, as a husband, you, you've, you have used your position of power in your marriage to serve yourself and not your wife, why would you think that God would use his position of power to serve you? See, the gospel is about God who was strong, using his position of power to serve the weak. And that should be increasingly true of us if we look like Jesus. If you're always using your position of power to serve yourself, how can you claim that you know Jesus who used his ultimate position of power to serve you and me? You see, the job of a husband is not to demand submission. It is to become worthy of it. The job of a husband is not to demand submission. In fact, if you ever do that, you have absolutely missed the point entirely. Do you notice Jesus never demands that? He invites it. He never demands it. And said he was worthy of it. Spoiler alert, as a husband, I realize that there are plenty of times that I am not worthy of my wife's submission to me. I am painfully aware of that truth sometimes. And that leads me, it like motivates me, it causes me to long to look more and more like Jesus because he is always worthy of her submission. And I want to live like him. Peter reminds us the calling of a husband is to treat wives the way that Christ treated us, to, to love them, to value them, to respect them, to honor them, to put yourself as lower than them that you might serve them. That's how Jesus treated us. He calls us to do that as husbands so that the world might see the good news of the gospel transforming a man. You see, both husbands and wives have an incredibly high calling as we seek to demonstrate the gospel 
to unbelieving spouses in an unbelieving world. But we're not just called to demonstrate the gospel, we're set free to demonstrate the gospel, and we're set free by Jesus himself to actually do it. You cannot do it without him. He's not just your example, he is your savior. If he's just your example, his example crushes you. But if he's your savior, then his example empowers you. See, the gospel frees wives to submit to even unworthy husbands. When you willingly submit to husbands, even those who don't deserve it, you reveal that you are free. You reveal that you are free from societal norms. You reveal that you are free from all of that garbage. Instead, your actions reveal that you're free because your actions are not based on what someone else has done to you or not done to you. They're based on your free choice to submit and serve. And what happens is you proclaim the good news about a gospel about a God who did not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Instead, about a gospel, about a God who is full of grace and is full of mercy. See, the world defines freedom as ultimate autonomous authority to do whatever you want, to be whatever you want to be, to demand your rights, to never let anyone get in your way. But the Bible says that true freedom comes from submitting to the one with all power and all authority and letting him live through you. That enables real life and enables lasting joy even as you submit to unworthy authority. See, it was out of Jesus' freedom that he chose to submit himself to death. He did not have to. He willingly did it. I just invite you to live in the, live in the freedom that Jesus' blood has bought for you. No longer be a slave. Proclaim him with your lives. When the gospel frees men to be understanding and empathetic and, and compassionate and, and sacrificially serving, because Jesus has freed us from slavery to living for ourselves, living for our own happiness, living for our own comfort, living for our own pleasure, our own gratification, and instead freed us to live sacrificially for the good of others. You see, Christian husbands should be the most considerate, the most understanding, the most empathetic men in all of the world, because we have been served by the most empathetic, the most considerate, the most understanding king of the universe. And our world needs to see manhood and husbandry defined in that way just as much as Peter's world did. You see, the point, the point of the passage is not simply about giving instructions about how husbands and wives should treat each other. If, if that's all it's about, we've missed the point, Right? Instead, it's about how we relate in marriage bears witness about the king we live for and about the good news of his kingdom. The instructions Peter gives to husbands and wives, I just need you to hear this. They are not about you. They're not about you. They're about Jesus. It's going to be impossible for honor and submission to characterize the way that you relate to your spouse if it's about you and it's not about Jesus, it will be impossible. The invitation, though, is that our marriages might be among the most convincing proofs of the gospel's transforming power in a cynical world. Here's my question for you. Are there, are there people in your life that don't know Jesus yet who are seeing the details of your marriage, not, not from a distance, not from far away, but from close up and near? And do you show them just the weak? Do you show them only 
the Strong's places? Do you speak only out of positions of understanding, out of positions you've already grown in? Or are you willing to show and able to show the weak spots in which God is at work transforming you? It was such a great joy for us to um, do premarital counseling with our friends, the Foxes, as they investigated what it looked like to follow Jesus. And, and my deepest hope is that what they saw in us is that our love for one another is often messy and often, un, like often not what it should be. But increasingly, ongoingly, we long for it to be motivated out of Jesus' love for us. Wives, where do you need to grow in submission? Is it an attitude of support? Is it an attitude of cooperation? Are you realizing that what characterizes the way you relate to your husband is maybe a critical attitude, especially in front of others? Where do you need to grow in submission? Husbands, where do you need to grow in understanding and respect and sacrificial service? Where do you need to grow in caring less about you and more about her? I just invite you, ask one another those questions. Ask one another those questions. How do you think I can grow in, in living out submission that models the gospel? Husbands, how do you think I could grow in living out sacrificial love and honor and, and respect, concern for you that demonstrate the gospel? Just, if you, if you decide to do that, I would strongly encourage you to ask one another those questions. And you got to do that with grace. You got to do that with humility. And if your spouse, like, if your spouse would honor you by, like, answering that question, Shut your mouth and listen to them, okay? Shut your mouth. Do not give defensiveness. Do not give, like, if your spouse would honor you by, be, by like, being willing to say something to that, respect that with great concern. Don't, don't trample over that, like, vulnerability that's been offered, okay? Gentleness with that. As a family of God, Graciously help one another and each other's marriages to grow in this. You don't have to be married to be able to tell a sister in Christ the way that you're treating your husband in front of people, that, that's destroying your witness and it's destroying your relationship with your husband. Like, that can't happen. I love you. Likewise, dudes, you don't have to be married to like see like selfishness in a, in a married guy. You don't have to be married to be able to see that. that. That can be pretty obvious. Like, be willing to call that out in people's lives gently, graciously, with humility. In a few moments, we're going to remember the ultimate demonstration of the gospel as we take communion. Communion, it's a, it's a picture, and it's a reminder for us about the gospel. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we couldn't live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus', uh, his, his blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And communion does not make you right with God. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the gospel, to remember Jesus' humble submission to authority, to remember his sacrificial service of the powerless of you and I as we were slaves to sin. The bread and the juice, they're in the back. I just invite you to take the bread, dip it in the juice. As we sing, as we worship, as we remember the gospel together, if you put your trust in Jesus, whenever, go ready, whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if you haven't yet submitted to his authority yet, you, I just want you to hear, you are so welcome here. 
But I would invite you to hold off on taking communion. Submit to him before you take communion. Let's pray.